do want to finish up a thought that I started last week, a thought that I think is so important that it fills the entire scripture as we look at the, the entire Bible and what it stands for and what it teaches and what it means. And last week we looked at the Passover and how God freed the Israelites from bondage and to slate from slavery and, um, under Pharaoh and Egypt. And when the people got to Mount Sinai, when they got through the Red Sea to the base of the mountain, they met with God. And I want us to look at that passage because it's a very significant passage that impacts not just the Israelites back then, but I think it has implications for us today. So Exodus chapter 19. If you have your Bibles, flip over there. There should be some Bibles uh, in the backs of the seats if you need them. Exodus chapter 19. Starting in verse 3. So Moses went up to the mountain of God, to God, excuse me, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. He said, this is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the people's. Although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. And these are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. Now, God didn't just have a conversation with Moses. He did. I mean, he had a lot of conversations with Moses. I mean, if there's, if there's a Bible character that we should be jealous of, if there's a, such a thing as a godly jealousy for us, it should be Moses. We make a, a big deal about Solomon because he built the temple and was wise and rich. And we make a big deal about David because of his conquest. But I don't know of anybody in the scripture that had as many conversations directly with God as Moses. And what an amazing, what an amazing journey his life was with God. And God sits Moses down and he says, listen, I got something you got to say. Tell the Israelites this. Now, you ever wished God would just tell you what he wanted? Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't it be awesome if God could just text you? Do this. I mean, that'd be, that'd be sweet. God is telling Moses here that there's something that he wants to say to the people of Israel. And it's so significant that it's repeated over and over again in the Torah. In the, it's in the first five books of the Old Testament. It's repeated over and over again in the Old Testament. It's repeated over and over again in the New Testament. This message that he has keeps coming up over and over and over again. So he starts with, tell them this. Now, that's a phrase that probably struck a lot of excitement and fear in Moses at the same time, right? Tell them this. Moses has heard this phrase before. A couple times. Matter of fact, in Exodus chapter 3, there's that whole burning bush, which is really kind of misnomer because it wasn't really burning, right? That, but the, the bush that was appeared to be on fire and God spoke to him. And in Exodus chapter 3, you have at least three times where God, Moses says, but what am I going to tell them? Who am I going to tell them sent me? Tell them I am sent you. Well, what am I going to tell them about this? Tell them I said this. Tell them this about me. At least three times in Exodus chapter 3, God looks at Moses when he's calling him out. And Moses, of course, is so reluctant to go. But God says, listen, tell them this. 
This is the beginning of their freedom from slavery. And it starts with God calling Moses out and saying, tell the people this. Something big's about to happen. In chapter 6, Moses confronts Pharaoh. He has confronted Pharaoh, and life gets miserable for the Israelites. And God calls Moses aside because Moses is complaining. What am I going to do? And God says to Moses, tell them this. I'm about to do something new. Something's going to happen. It's the beginning of the plagues, just before the plagues. In chapter 12, after nine plagues have taken place, and the Israelites have seen the wonder of God, God confronts Moses again and converses with him and calls him out and says, listen, something's about to happen. The Passover is going to take place, as we know it now. This 10th plague of death. And he says, tell the Israelites this. And he gives them instructions on how to live. So three major events being led out of Egypt, being prepared, um, well, I'm sorry, calling Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. So Moses' calling started with, tell them this. Moses being ready to confront Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the known world at that time, starts with, tell them this. And then as God is getting ready to lead his people out by taking the, the lives of the firstborn of all of the Egyptians because of their just their hardness of heart, Pharaoh's hardness of heart, it starts with, tell them this. These words have resonated in Moses' ears for some time now. And it doesn't even stop there. In chapter 14, as they're fleeing the Egyptians, as they've left the camp, God says to Moses, tell them to camp out in front of the Red Sea. Not a military stronghold by any stretch of the imagination. But tell them to camp here. Because God was about to do something else miraculous in parting the Red Sea and swallowing up all of Pharaoh's armies and destroying their enemies. In chapter 16, they get instructions of how they're going to eat and how God is going to provide for them in some new way that's never taken place before. He's going to bring bread from heaven. It's going to show up on the dew. And it starts out with God telling Moses, tell the people this. So when God confronts Moses, when God sits down with Moses and calls to him and says, come here, I've got something you got to say. Big things happen. I mean, this, these are words that would probably bring, again, excitement and maybe a little bit of apprehension from this great leader, Moses. In chapter 19, Moses went up the mountain to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to Israel. And then at the end of verse 6, these are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. There's a message in here that is as significant as the events that have taken place. It's as important as the parting of the Red Sea, as the calling out of slavery, as the provision of the manna. There's a message here that God wants the Israelites not to miss, that God is doing something else spectacular and new and exciting that he hasn't done before. And Moses is not going to miss this opportunity. Let's take a look and examine what this message is. The message says this, you saw what I did in Egypt, 
and that I carried you on, eagle, on eagle's wings. Now, that's a phrase we don't necessarily use much, do we? Carried on eagle's wings. I mean, unless you're watching Lord of the Rings or something, you're not really thinking about being carried on eagle's wings, right? Some of you, that's immediately where your brain went as soon as you heard that phrase, right? Let's be honest. Carried you on eagle's wings. You saw what I did in Egypt to Pharaoh and to all the Egyptians, the 10 plagues. You, you couldn't miss the 10 plagues. I mean, you couldn't miss them. There was the smell of rotting frogs throughout the entire land. There was all sorts of disgusting things you could not miss. Flies everywhere. And then that awful night where you heard nothing but crying because of the death that surrounded you. And you saw God lead you out of that. You saw God destroy Pharaoh and all of his armies. Now, if you're an Israelite, you have, at this point, you've been in slavery for over 400 years. You don't have a close relationship with God, but you know that he's a God who brings plague and pestilence and death. Right? How many of you are thinking, I want to know that God better? You're probably thinking, I should fear this God. And there is a component of fear that needs to be there. But God doesn't say, you saw what I did to Egypt. If you don't straighten up and fly right, that's going to be you. I mean, that's not the way God approached them. He said, you saw what I did in Egypt, but you also saw what I did for you. That I carried you on eagle's wings. How do we understand that phrase? Maybe we should go a little further into the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. Verse 11 says this about God. He watches over his nest like an eagle and hovers over his young. He spreads his wings and catches them and carries them on his feathers. That's what God is talking about what he did for the Israelites. They were young, fledgling. They're fledglings in their faith. They don't even know how to be a nation, let alone how to serve God, because they don't know God. They haven't been a nation. They've been 400 years servants. And God says, look, I carried you, and I've helped you not peril, not die. I've helped you survive, and I've brought you to a place of safety. I carried you on my wings. I think what's even more significant um, than just the fact that God carried him, because we think about this phrase, and we have plaques on the wall, right? What's, what's that famous plaque on the wall that talks about God carrying us? Anybody know? The footsteps or the footprints or whatever in the sand, and there's two sets, and then there's one set, and, and whatever. It makes a good plaque, but it's not necessarily great theology. But we like that idea of God carrying us, right? We like that idea of God you know, protecting us and carrying us and wiping out our enemies. But I think what's even more significant is the result of, and, and the cause and the purpose for why God did it that we see in this passage. It says in this passage that you saw what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. The most significant thing that took place was not the destruction of Pharaoh and his armies. The most significant thing that took place was not the parting of the Red Sea, and it was not the plagues. The most significant thing to God was bringing his people to him. I did all this to bring you to me. God pulled Israel out of slavery and carried them to freedom so that he 
could be with them, and they could be with him. Now, it's at this point, actually, in the story in, in Exodus, that God starts to appear before them as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And they actually get to see God's presence there, which I think is really cool, too. A physical manifestation of this God that they do not know. But God's great desire was to be with his people. Now, for someone like me that focuses on tasks and projects and doing things for God, this sounds better in theology than it does in practice. That the most important thing that God did was to draw the Israelites to him so they could have a relationship. I get it, but it's hard for me to get it. That the most important thing about all of this is that God wants relationship with people because I want to do things for God. I mean, I can give you so many verses about what James, be doers of the word and not hearers only. There's a parable of the talents that God gives you stuff and you need to invest it for God. So you need to do stuff. Storing up treasures in heaven and not treasures on this earth. This doing things. Every man uh, in the, in, I forgot which book it was in. Don't quote me on this one. Um, but that every man's works will be tested as by fire to see whether it's wood, hay, or stubble, and to see instead if it's precious gems and gold and silver. So every man's works are going to be tested. So I, I, I'm a doer, so those verses excite me. If you go back to Proverbs, consider the ant. Don't be like the sluggard. It's not that, well, yeah, it is that I struggle sometimes. You see, for me, any of you remember the story of Mary and Martha with Jesus? That they're having a dinner. And, of course, Mary's doing what? Just hanging out at Jesus' feet, just chilling. And Martha's like, Jesus, did you see her? Doesn't she know there's things to do? It's not that we're all called to be just Mary's or just Martha's. It's that there's a balance between the two. And for someone like me, it's easier to relate to the Martha where I want to be doing things for God, physical things, things that, make, that, that I can actually see the results of. In relationships, you don't always see a, an end result as far as like a finished product. So when I read passages about, you see what God did, keep my commandments, I got that part. But then when it's like, but God wants to have a relationship, now I start to struggle a little bit. It means I have to stop doing sometimes just to be with. And that's hard for me. If I merely practice, if I merely do things, if I merely accomplish tasks for God, but have no relationship, then basically I'm just practicing an empty religion. And at the same time, if I'm merely talking about God and spending time with God, but not loving others and not doing things for God, then my relationship lacks action. Then James says, I'm a hypocrite and my faith is dead. It's not that I can be one or the other. It's that I have to be both. And we see in God's relationship with Israel here that he says, listen, I called you out. You saw what I did and I carried you so that you could be with me. And then he goes into now, if you'll keep my covenant. I love the fact that God started with the relationship 
before he started with the rules. I think it shows God's heart. We know his heart. And his heart is more about our heart and why we do things for him than the fact that we just do things for him. He starts with the relationship. Tell them all that I have done so that I could be closer to them. I think it's just such an amazing thing. And then he says, keep the commandments. But again, it's not the do this or else. He says, listen, if you're careful to do what I tell you, which by the way, Adam and Eve failed in the garden, right? They had one command. Actually, they had many commands. But they had one thing they shouldn't do, right? Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or good and bad. And they failed that one. God says, listen, if you're careful to do what I tell you, this is what will happen. And I want to focus, uh, kind of hone in on this a little bit. God makes some promises to them. If you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine. And you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words you are to say to Israel. The first thing he says is you'll be, Israel will be God's possession, handpicked by God above everybody else. And this is repeated over and over again in the scriptures. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says, You are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. And Psalm thirty-three, twelve says, Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen to be his own possession. Says, Listen, I've called you here, and if you'll follow me, you'll be my people. People of my own possession. You'll be, of all the people of the world, you will be a special people to me. Handpicked by God. Second thing he says, you'll be as a holy nation. Now, to be holy is to be set apart. Um, to be distinct. We often mistake holiness for perfection, but that's not what it is. Um, inanimate objects are actually declared to be holy. Did you know that? Uh, the, the things that they used to serve in the temple were declared holy. We're talking about like tongs, serving dishes were holy. It's not about perfection. It's about purpose. It's about being set apart for a specific work. And he says, you will be a holy nation. You'll have a specific purpose set apart for the work of God. As a matter of fact, it's a command in Leviticus 20, 26. He says, you are, to be holy, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and have set you apart from the nations to be mine. You are to be holy to me because I am holy and you because I have called you to be set apart from the nations. In other words, he's saying to Israel, I'm going to make you so different from the rest of the world. You're to be unique from them, called out from them, not living for the things that they live for, but living for me. Set apart, distinct. And then he tells them a little bit more. He says, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. Well, I don't know... If you've read much of the Old Testament, you know there's a lot of regulations on what the priests do. Kingdom of priests means that everybody who is called into God's people are to be ministering before God. They're to be coming before God and offering sacrifices to God, praises to God, 
offerings to God. They're also to be drawing people to God. The priests were the ones who brought up sacrifices for the people so the people could be near God, who prayed for the people so people could be near God. Because you all will be a kingdom of priests who will serve before me, both to praise me and to draw other people to me. If you follow my command, this is what you will become. God is stating here for them what he wants to do for them and through them. First of all, he wants to change their identity to be the people of Yahweh. They're to be a distinct people whose lives reflect him and whose activity points to him. A distinct people whose lives reflect him and whose actions point people to him. Second, he calls them to a ministry of priesthood to present offerings, to bless God, to have fellowship with God, to intercede for others, and to draw people to God. So I want you to grab this. God's big announcement on par with, slave, with freedom from slavery, deliverance from enemies, daily provision, and the promise of a future inheritance, the promised land, God's big word to the Israelites that is announced with, tell them this, on par with all those other big announcements, is that God wants people to be in a relationship with him, to be called out to serve him and to share him with the nations. You're going to be a people that reflect God, he says. They reflect his character. And you're going to be a light to the nations around you. That's huge. Now, we kind of draw on the whole Red Sea thing, and we, we love that story. And we love the plagues. We kind of skip over this part, but this is a big announcement. God is saying to the Israelites, there's something big going on here. But what does this have to do with us? Why is this so significant to you and me today? Why would we want to start the new year off with a message about this? Last week, we talked about the Passover and how it applies um, to, to us, um, that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, and he gave his life, shed his blood, so that the angel of death would pass over us, so that we could be redeemed by God and called out as his people. God's huge announcement is that you and me, God's huge announcement is that you and me, all of us who have accepted the work of Jesus, are now his chosen people, his holy nation, and his kingdom of priests. I want you to flip to the New Testament to 1 Peter chapter 2. See, we study the Israelites, and we study the Old Testament, and so often we approach it with this mindset of, well, that's, that's for them, it's for Israel, and, and let me be honest with you, just some of the promises and some of the commands are for Israel alone. However, the Old Testament points to the New Testament. The Old Testament points to Christ. And what we learn in the Old Testament often relates to you and I today as a church. And so in, fortunately for us, we have the apostles in the, the, um, in the New Testament who wrote books to churches to teach them how to connect some of the Old Testament teachings 
to the church in the modern day. And in 1 Peter, we have one of those moments. Peter is writing to those who have believed in Jesus in certain geographical regions. So he's, he's writing to the saints in certain regions. And for those that accepted the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, he says this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is taking the churches that we read about after the resurrection of Christ, and he's saying, listen, if you've accepted the gift of Christ, I'm going to take you back to that Mosaic covenant, back to that promise made to the Israelites. And I want you to understand that you are now people of the promise. That you and I, if we've accepted Christ, are now given the same promises, the same identity, the same mission that Israel was given. Now, the problem we encounter with the Old Testament is as we read those words said, if you keep my covenant carefully. Now, the, the Old Testament's pretty good at teaching us that Israel didn't do that, right? It's also a really good reminder that you and I on our own, we can't do that. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came and satisfied the law completely, which is why through Christ, we can now experience the fullness of this promise. Jesus did what we could not do, and now if we simply accept his gift of new life, we experience the benefits of this covenant. We don't earn salvation, it's a gift. Similarly, you don't earn or choose your identity after salvation, it's bestowed upon you. It's a fact, it's a done deal. Which means that if you have given your life to Christ, you are a chosen people. You are a people of his possession, handpicked by God on purpose. You mean so much to him that he gave his son to purchase your freedom. You are God's people. It's a done deal. Read the book of Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. You can't miss it. It's a done deal. It means you are a holy people. <laughs> this is where we start to struggle, right? I got the whole part about being God's. That's cool. I'm his, he's mine, we're good. But holy people, if I said, how many, if I asked you, how many of you believe today that you are holy? Any hands? Uh, hesitantly, right? I want to raise them too high because I don't want to be on the camera. I don't want anybody to know for sure, right? Okay. Holiness does not equal perfection. It means being set apart. You are not perfect. I am not perfect. Jesus was perfect. The only one ever. And if God is commanding us to be holy, he's not commanding us to do something that's beyond our ability through the Spirit. 
He's not telling us to be perfect. He's telling us to be set apart for the work of God, like utensils in the temple, like utensils in the tabernacle, tools that God can use to bring glory to his name, to be set apart from the world, living a life that is distinct and different. Now, how many of you think you can be holy? Well, absolutely. It's your identity. You don't get to choose it, by the way. He doesn't say, okay, well, now that you're my people, some of you may choose to be holy. And if you'd like to be holy today, come up front and we'll, you know, we'll give you the little badge and you can have the name tag that says, this is one of my holy people, and the rest of you can just be some somewhat holy people, okay? It's like, no, you become what Christ has purchased for you. You become what God has bestowed on you. He has called you his people, and he has made you holy. He has set you apart. He has declared you holy. I think if we could grasp that in today's culture and erase from our brains this idea of perfectionism equaling holiness, I think God would do amazing things when we understand that being holy means being set apart for God to use. It would transform our churches, but we believe this lie and this just this horrible definition of holiness being perfection that it's really crippled us. And he says, you are also, not that you will be, you are a kingdom of priests. I'm just an elder. You're priests. How cool is that? Then I'll go out and get robes. You know, start coming in next week with your robes and your ephods and your, you know, all that kind of stuff. We don't want to get into that. But we're all priests now, every one of us. Now, there's actually a, a teaching on this called the priesthood of believers. It's a fun one to study, and I encourage you to do so. But the priests were the ones who ministered before the Lord, who offered up sacrifices for sins for people, and helped draw people closer to God. Whether it was the person who'd never heard about God, or whether it was those that were in a relationship with God and helping them stay close to God. You and I are called priests, which means that we have the privilege of serving God, of being near God, of praying for you. But James says, listen, pray for your brother who's sinning. Why? Because you're a priest. You pray on their behalf so they can be close to God again. It's like That's why you confess your faults to one another. It's why we have the privilege now of not only confessing our faults to one another and praying for each other, we have the privilege of helping people outside of the nation meet God, and come to know God on his terms. We're a kingdom of priests. You and I, the day we gave our lives to Christ, God stamped us with some new identities. He said, listen, I want to tell you who you are now. You are my people, my possession, a people of my own choosing. And I have news for you. No one can take that away from you. You belong to God. And on top of that, he has set you apart and declares you holy, consecrated for his work. Your life is different now. You have a totally different place of living and of being and of doing because you are set apart for the very God of the universe who loved you enough to save you out of slavery and bring you into relationship with him out of darkness, into the light. Peter makes sure he throws that in there to take you back to that Passover narrative, that you were, a king, you were brought out of darkness and into the marvelous light. 
and you are a kingdom of priests to present offerings to God and to draw people closer to God. It's your calling. Now this, I say that these teachings show up all the way throughout the Bible. This shows up, we see it with Moses in the Old Testament. We see it now in the New Testament message to the church. But I want to fast forward to the end of the book, to the book of Revelation chapter 5. I want you to understand how significant this announcement was and why I say it's even a greater announcement than the one that came with the parting of the Red Sea or the one that came with the plagues that took place. It's bigger than that because this one, this message that God gave to Moses to tell them this comes out at the end of the book when the Lamb of God appears. And in Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures among the elders. And he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and, a gold, and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on this earth. This was part of the mission of God from the very beginning was to have us reign on this earth with him. And by reigning, it means declaring glory to him and drawing people to him, pointing all of creation to him. This song sung in Revelation is about you and me. There's a song written about us, but we're kind of like the second fiddle in it. I don't know if that really transliterates in a musical metaphor, but we're not the important subject. The important subject is God and what he's done in buying us to be a people for his possession. Now, over the years, I've had many people question the will of God. And they said things like, I wish God would just tell me what, to, what he wants me to do. Or they'd say things like, man, I wish I could understand God's will. And I think what they really mean is they wish God would give them the details of everything on their day from what they should wear to what they should eat to what they should say. And I have a feeling if God did that, we would hate him, not love him. Right? If you don't believe me, try that with your kids or your spouse someday and see what happens. If God would give us a detailed list of what he wants us to do, if God would just reveal his will to me, then I would know what to do. Well, I want to tell you, God's will is not a mystery, folks. It's really not. Since the very beginning, God has wanted people to trust him. We see that in the garden. I've given you all of this. Just don't eat from this tree. Trust me. From the very beginning, it's been about trusting God. When they do, he calls them to rule and reign with him, and his people join him on his mission of pointing people to them. That mission hasn't changed ever, and it's our mission today. I think maybe we should write down that mission because we just read about it this morning that the, the will of God is so clear. 
And you can sum it up this way. I am chosen. I am holy. And I am called to draw people to God. That's God's will for you. He has chosen you. He has set you apart. and He's given you a ministry of drawing people to Him. That's God's will. The rest of it is just in the details. And the details for every one of us will be different. And if God told you everything you need to do, you wouldn't need to trust Him. But His will has always been for us to just trust Him. To do His work and to trust Him. God's big announcement is that you are His people I am his people, and he has set us apart to be a light to the world. I want to leave you with a, another verse and then an assignment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. I want to sum up this mission. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, and the new life has begun. And all this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. Okay, so you've seen the theme here? All this is a gift from God who brought us to himself through Christ. Exactly how the command to Moses started out. Remember what I did to Egypt? Remember how I carried you so that I could draw you to myself? We're being drawn right back to that. Through Christ, we're drawn to the Father. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave this wonderful message of reconciliation to us. So we are Christ's ambassadors, and God is making his appeal through us. We speak, um, we speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. God called the Israelites to him so he could set them apart, so he could, so he could really own them, possess them, make them his people, set them apart, and give them the mission of joining him in reconciling people to him. And that's the same thing we have today. We've been drawn to God, not just so we can say, okay, I'm good with God. We got this. Me and God, we're, we, you know, we're, we're buds. I, I know I've, I've settled my score with God and we're good come to church services and just see what I can get out of it, try to live squeaky clean and, you know, all be good. It's like, no, you have so much more to your life than that. You've been chosen, you've been set apart, and you've been commissioned to be ambassadors of reconciliation, to be a light that point people to God. And so in 2020, the question is going to be, how are we living up to our identity? How are we embracing what God has done for us? We don't pick our identity, it's given to us. And how are we living in that? So I want to ask you to take some time this week and really pray about and answer three questions. So if you have a piece of paper to write these down, that's great. If not, you'll have to go to the sermon notes on the website. You can grab them from there or use your bulletin um, and write them on there. I want, you to, I want you to think about three questions. First of all, what does it mean that I am chosen and belong to God. What does that mean, that I am chosen and belong to God? I want you to wrestle with that. The second question is similar to it. What does it mean that I am holy and set apart for God? You notice it's not as asking, am I holy? What does it mean that I am holy and set apart for God? 
And the third one, you kind of know where it's going, right? What does it mean that I am a priest and minister before or serve God? So what does it mean to be chosen? What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be a priest? I want you to really work through those questions. You won't work through them in one week. (laughs) If we're fortunate, we'll work through them mostly in one lifetime. But this is who you are. And so as I thought about how I wanted to start the beginning of the year, like last week, I wanted us to focus on what God has done. So we celebrated communion and we talked about his pulling us out of darkness and into the light and taking us from slavery into freedom. But I also wanted to start the year off by really thinking about who we are now because of what he's done. Who are we because of Jesus Christ? And how should that change the way that I live from day to day? I could give you a list of 10 things you need to do this week. That's not what it's about. It's about understanding what God has done for you and allowing him to lead you. It's the identity God's given us, and we ought to embrace it. Uh, May God give us the insight and the strength to live out the identity that we now have through Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your work has not been just about calling us to you so you could have a bunch of busy bees that just do work for you, but that it pleased you and it still pleases you today to draw people to you, into relationship with with you. Thank you for loving me enough, for loving each of us enough to make that possible through Christ. And Father, as we think about what you've done, I know I can admit that I barely understand all of what you've done for us. Teach us this year what it means to be chosen by you and to be holy and to be priests because it's what you've called us to. It's the identity you've given us. Help us to live out that identity, to embrace it, and to make you proud of the way that we step into what you've called us to. We pray in Jesus' name for your sake and your kingdom. Amen.